Hi, thanks for listening to the Military Medicine Podcast. Unfortunately, this episode starts with a disclaimer. The sound quality for the first four minutes isn't up to our usual standards, with slightly muffled sound. We're really sorry for this. I'd messed up the microphone settings, and the air conditioning in the anti-doping room underneath Murrayfield, where we were recording, was huffing and puffing like a prop in the 75th minute. Nevertheless, it clears up after this, and we truly believe Dr. Robson's fascinating insights are well worth persevering for. Our apologies to Dr. Robson and to you, our listeners. Uh, hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Military Medicine Podcast. Uh, we're really excited to bring you this episode from Murrayfield, the spiritual home of the Scotland rugby team, with none other than Scotland rugby's chief medical officer, Dr. James Robson, who's been a British and Irish Lions team doctor since 1993 too. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Robson. Uh, we kick off the podcast with five quick fire questions that you're only allowed to answer with a single word or phrase. Are you ready? Go. Brilliant. Who's been your favourite player to work with? Keith Wood. That was quick. Um, uh, this one's from Lieutenant Colonel Sue Pope. Uh, you maintain your licence to practise physiotherapy as well as doctoring. If you had to choose to practise just one, which would it be? Medicine. Oh, she's not going to be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst injury you've ever had to manage on a rugby field? Uh, um, uh, neck injury. Neck injury. And if you were king for a day, what single change would you make to make rugby safer? Longer holidays for the players. Mm. And finally, which resource would you recommend to anyone wanting to learn more about becoming a rugby doctor? Well, I think um, grassroots, so BASM, British Association of Sport and Exercise Medicine. Thanks, James. So now we'll launch into the podcast proper, where you'll be very glad to know you can answer with as many words as you like. So, um, first up, you, you played for Edinburgh Wanderers, right? Uh, were you any good? Yeah, many years ago, and, 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 and no, I wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, and do you still play? No, no, I, I would be in the veterans now, and uh, having covered a veterans tournament several years ago, um, the injury toll was just awful. <laughs> we actually got a phone call from one of the consultants um, in A&E, just asking if we could actually desist <laughs> so let's talk a bit about managing acute injuries now, now I guess with this being a military medicine podcast a parallel can be drawn between military medicine and rugby medicine in that in both war and a rugby game uh, play or war continues around the clinician treating the injury so what's your approach to being on what's essentially a battlefield treating a patient and have you ever got caught up in play? We'll frequently get caught up in play. The idea is to keep yourself and your players safe. So they're they're a, a, a bit like the military. There are rules of engagement. Um, rugby is is unique as a sport in that we can enter the field of play, but we have to avoid running over attack lines. We have to be cognizant of where um, play is, and we have to be cognizant of not to. Um, either get injured ourselves because that's not going to help our patient or to injure other people when we enter the field of play. Mm. That said, there was a particular incident where I actually broke all of those rules and interfered with play and that was one that's public knowledge where Hugo Monia from um, England and Kelly Brown, Kelly Brown clashed heads and both were rendered unconscious 
almost in an instant and I recognise that because we're, we keep up with play, we keep, keep up with what's going on in the field and I kind of entered in because there was a melee of players, there was a, a, a ruck forming over the top of the players straight away because other people weren't aware of the dangers there and uh, the referee blew up after a few seconds really realising that there was another um, extra body on the pitch. <laughs> And another sort of serious injury that you're uh, sort of well known for being involved in was Tom Evans' one, and he, he credits you with preventing him from being paralysed. And stepping back from the most severe injuries like that, when you look at all injuries, what is the chance of an injury per 15-man team per match? It's, it, it, it's very difficult. It varies from, from injury to injury. We have statistics that show perhaps there's maybe 15 concussions per thousand playing hours and there's maybe you know a similar stat for ankles for knees I tend not to hold the exact figures in my head but we we see studies that are uh, published on a regular basis that show these statistics Um, what we're trying to do by collecting that information is to learn what can we do to change the game that might result in less injury? Mm. And so the front row of the scrum used to be one of the biggest injury risks to players, but now it's it's certainly the tackle. What rule changes will reduce injuries in the tackle, or what rule changes already taking place will Things do that? Things that they're looking at, in particular that you will have seen if you were watching the World Cup being enforced, is the high tackle. It's the collision above the, the height of the, the shoulders to try and avoid quite so much contact with the head and neck area, because mm. concussion is a big issue in all collision sports, but in particular in rugby at the moment and what we're trying to do is control the controllables. If we penalise people for making a high tackle, they'll very quickly learn that that will hurt them on the points margin, may result in the, the, the loss of the game, and therefore they will change the technique. That makes sense. And some players, they seem to get injured absolutely incessantly, and some some very rarely. If I went back to playing next year, which uh, teams around the country will be hoping doesn't happen, um, what are the biggest factors determining my injury risk? You've got to look at the genetics first. Are you suitable for contact sport? We don't know. We we haven't got a a weeding out process at, 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 at the moment, but you're entirely right. There are people who go through the careers with virtually no injury, and we have other players, uh, and I've known a considerable amount, who seem to get recurrent injury. Nobody quite knows. We endeavour to minimise that um, impact by profiling our players, by when they first come in and then on a routine basis, have a look at certain metrics, certain certain parameters, and see if there's anything that we can modify in order to prevent injury. We also, of course, if we identify any weakness such as, you know, lack of neck strength, target that specific area. Mm. If people come to us with with, um, recurrent shoulder issues, then they'll undergo an intensive period of prehabilitation, rehabilitation allied to the, the shoulder. So it's all about measuring what we can measure hoping that what we see has a translatable um, um, outcome that we can modify. 
And so 20 years from now, what do you predict will have had the greatest impact in reducing the risk of injuries in rugby? Uh, I, th- I think the, the, the risk is often mapped against the load. And I think in days gone by, we perhaps trained for, say, two and a half hours at a time. Those days are gone, and I think we've still got to refine it. I think it's all about exposure, um, training load, allied to, you know, the more you train and the harder you train, yeah, you become better, but there's a tipping point at which you actually become vulnerable as well, and you get training injuries, or you may get playing injuries. It's trying to get that real balance between how much do we need to do in the working week allied to what the outcome will be at the weekend on the pitch. We've got to keep them safe, so they need to do X amount, but if we do Y amount, does that mean that they're more likely to get injured? I, th- I think in the future we will do less training during the week. We may employ techniques that we're looking at at the moment using virtual reality to, to hone the skills. Mm. And that will then allow the body to be at its optimum at the weekend. Fascinating. And how do you use virtual reality at the moment? With, this is in its infancy, and we just we just had a, a meeting with um, um, some university people just just last week to look at how we might use virtual reality in both training and also perhaps in concussion rehabilitation. It, it's a field that's ripe for for use, and I don't know anybody that actually knows where that might go, but I'm very excited by it. Oh, understandably so. And one of our listeners, Colonel Nigel Tai, wanted us to pose the question about what the sensor on the back of rugby players was, what data it collected and what you were doing with that. And I guess that relates to our question, your, your point a moment ago about, about load. Is it to yeah, make it's, load? It's, it's about monitoring load. So we use GPS data, not because we, we, we need to find our players. We can <laughs> see them out there, albeit on tra- you know, for, after the match. For, for training days, it might be useful. But we use it both in training and in playing. And so what we're wanting to do, we're trying to see what do we actually do in games and we're building up that database and what do people in certain positions do, what their accelerations look like, how many collisions they have, map that against what we actually see on the video. So we have this this matching up of physical um, and movement data against what they're actually doing rugby technique-wise. And then we're trying to see how that translates into the working week and what we need to do in order for them to actually perform at their optimum. So it's collecting that data and using it in a way that informs us. Let's talk a bit about concussion. Players are obviously getting bigger and faster, but schools certainly aren't getting any thicker. Um, Why is concussion a problem and is the scale of the problem growing? It's very difficult to know if it's... um, truly grown from what we would have had historically because when you question people who played 20, 30 years ago, they often come out with stories, oh yeah, I had several concussions and I just got on with it. And then we had the position where if we recognise concussion, we take them out for a period of time and in, in days gone by, that was three weeks. But it was, you stop playing here and you start playing here. Now we have learned largely from from, um, what was happening in America with with football over there. I mean, American football as opposed to to soccer. And we know 
that if we recognize concussion better, we should act in a different way. Um, it's difficult. Certainly looking at the data that we have in Scotland, the, the rate of concussion hasn't really varied over the, the last few years, but if you look at it compared to what we thought was happening years ago, it would appear that it has grown considerably. But most experts think that a large element of that is better recognition, and that's all been brought about by much better education. Basically what we've got to think of is we truly are not sure what the long-term outcome or the long-term implication of multiple concussions is or even one concussion and so we've got to manage our players with the best ability that we can at this moment and the school of thought is that we should withdraw people from play and not allow a potential for a second impact mm. and that's very important um, it's perhaps a little easier in the professional game because we have more eyes at pitch side and we have video analysis that can inform us. We have real-time video and a big, big, big play is being made about that. But we need to translate into everyday information for the community game. There we have what's called recognize and remove. So we're using the education around concussion to inform people at pit side in the community game to think I think that guy's concussed and therefore we bring him off and if subsequently you find out that's erroneous all you've done is lose a game but you've protected a brain yeah and what's the worry with multiple concussions well the the, the worry is that does it have a, a long-term implication for neurodegenerative disease mm. and there have been you know, recent revelations with the field study in Glasgow looking at ex-professional footballers and charting the fact that it would appear that there is a, say, a twofold risk in one type of neurodegenerative disease and a, up to a five times risk in, in, in others. That gives us a risk. It doesn't tell us just what the mechanism of injury is. And of course, the other thing that we have to remember is that concussion doesn't just happen in sport, it happens in everyday life, it happens in car accidents, it happens, yeah. it happens at the weekend with people falling down under the in influence. Mm. And at the most severe end of the spectrum, um, Will Greenwood credits you with saving his life on the 1997 Lions Tour of South Africa. What, what happened there? Uh, Will, Will, Will is very, is, is very ge generous and it, it was just it was perhaps the first time that I'd seen somebody rendered unconscious with, with, with a collision and by being unconscious of course de facto they're concussed but of course there may be more serious um, um, implications and it's more about how do you manage the unconscious patient and Will just took that few minutes to, um, to come around. I still remember vividly and it makes the, the hairs or what little hair I have left stand up on the back of my uh, neck of his mom just you know at pit side and being distraught at seeing her son come off on a on a, on a stretcher and you know so will you know it's, it's very kind but it's just that simple act that most medics will do is how do you manage the unconscious player and how long was he out for well, it's, 
difficult it seemed like a lifetime to yeah, me because I, I kept waiting for a more senior person to uh, intervene only to find that I perhaps was the senior person and that's quite scary. <laughs> I bet. And at, at the milder end of the spectrum, it's it's not always easy to spot, as you've already alluded to. Have you ever missed a concussion Oh, diagnosis? yeah, yeah, and a very famous example. Um, really, perhaps what started the whole concussion recognition debate off many, many years ago, we had a game here at Murrayfield, Scotland versus Wales, and there was a collision, Simon Webster, Martin Williams, I was at pit side and only a few uh, metres away and I actually started running on the pitch because I saw them both fall as they collided and I actually thought I would be treating the Wales player um, but when I arrived it was clearly he was getting up off the floor and Simon was still on the floor but talking to me. Later on I was pillared um, and rightly so by e email in, in, in the press, phone call from the World Rugby um, Chief Medical Officer at the time, and basically I had made an erroneous decision to leave him on based on the fact that although they'd had a big collision, when I arrived, Simon was talking to me. Later on, reviewing video footage, you could see clearly the signs that show that he had had a transient loss of consciousness. And so we took that learning to um, the World Rugby uh, Medical Committee and said, look, there is likely to be a, a place for recognising concussion because I prided myself being at that time a reasonably experienced uh, pit-side medic. Perhaps we could use video to recognise concussion better mm -hmm. or at least avoid those mistakes. And of course now uh, in the professional um, game, video use for spotting concussion is, is routine. That's brilliant. Well, at least but something very good came out of that. Then. Very much so. And I, I apologise profusely to Simon for leaving him on. That's <laughs> yeah. a wonder of hindsight, isn't it? And yeah, it must have been. It's easy for people to see in ultra slow motion, yeah, not quite soon. When I got home and I reviewed the footage that was available to other people, I think it was played in from seven different a angles in, in glorious slow motion. So, you know, other people could easily make the diagnosis, but a pit side, unsighted, real time, eyeball on, that's very difficult. One of the other learnings that came out of that was one of the other doctors at Pitchside afterwards confessed, oh yeah, I could see from the big screen that he was clearly unconscious. And of course, what they did was they deferred to seniority. They didn't want to interfere with my decision-making process. Now we know from particularly the airline industry of being par excellence from that you must challenge where you feel that somebody's making a mistake. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we routinely now, if we get injuries of any sort, um, concussion, shoulders, ankles, etc., we will, once we've kind of had the aftermath of post-match, we'll have a look at footage allied to injury to see if there's anything in, in, in that play, in that passage of time, that might help inform us as to how we modify our practice going forwards for the better. Mm, brilliant. And, and do players still try and pretend they haven't been concussed? And, and if so, how do we objectively test them for it? Yeah, no, I, 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 I believe that people no longer do that. However, sometimes, of course, they can have a transient loss of consciousness and be wholly unaware of that and yeah. feel absolutely fine. And I've run onto a pitch and had arguments with players 
And in the end, I've said, look, you know, we can do your head injury assessment, so why don't we just go off the pitch and we'll do that? And then, you know, you may be able to get back on, only to get them off the pitch, get them substituted, and then tell them, when in actual fact, I'll show you the footage, you were apparently unconscious and you're not going back on the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> that can be a quite a, a challenging um, argument, but fortunately they now know that I'm old enough and wise enough that <laughs> there's no point in arguing with me. The other objective um, measure that we have now in the professional game is to do head injury assessment. So we're given 12 minutes or so to do a multi-domain test, asking them numbers backwards, asking them you know, orientation questions, asking them to remember random sets of, of words, testing their balance, and then helping using that as a, as a tool to aid your clinical judgment. Because at the end of the day, we still don't have a definitive test that I can say, James, there you go, you are concussed. It's all about just that feel, that clinical judgment is still perhaps the best um, diagnostic tool that we have. And to touch on chronic injuries, is an experienced professional rugby player ever truly injury-free? And, and how do you manage them? Because I have no doubt that their situation is similar to a lot of experienced soldiers we have. It depends on what you define as, as injury, really. Um, there are many, perhaps a large cohort of players will take the pitch at the weekend still feeling the after effects of training off from previous injury. Mm. It's whether it's getting the balance, what we would say is that they're not injured if they can function to the level that we would expect them to normally be able to function to. Okay. So it's about functionality. So people can often play in, in relation to having had injury last week, for instance, members of the public perhaps would still be limping. These guys are running at, at speed, but of course, during the working week, they've got access on a daily basis to healthcare professionals. We've got fantastic physios working with us here. You know, I'm a, still a junior physio, as, a, as it were. I just do as the physios tell me because I'm now principally a, a, a doctor. But using that skill set, that musculoskeletal rehab, can make a world of a difference and turn people around in times that the general public would not expect. Um, and we've talked a lot about managing injuries, but finally, what's the role of the medical team in maximising performance? That's a good question, and indeed our uh, co head coach was posing that question just yesterday. What is the role of the medics? In fact, he was asking what is the role of of many people allied to the performance team, I would see that it's providing a holistic approach to injury management and to injury prevention. We're there to look after both the physical um, needs of the players and in uh, particular the team doctor and the physiotherapist, I would say, looking after the uh, mental well-being of the players as well because you are the first port of call with people undergoing long-term injury you've got that long-term daily relationship with the players so I think it's it's our job to look after the player in the best way that we possibly can in order for them to fulfill their desired potential at the weekend 
No, that makes sense. And we're going to close with a few questions questions that we've picked up from our listeners on Twitter, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, we've covered some of the topics already a little bit, but um, perhaps there'll be some gems that come out anyway. So uh, first one's from Dean Whiting. He's an advanced nurse practitioner in the Navy. And he asks, what lessons can be transferred to community or club rugby from the elite tier? Well, I think... Um Principally, when we were talking about concussion, it's the recognize and remove aspect. So for many years, we had that same. We're learning to, because of the professional nature of the game, we're learning to recognize it better, and we're passing that skill on. And I think it's also um, passing on first aid management. So we now, whilst we can't have doctors, highly skilled um, physios at every game, we can empower people to have a measure of first aid skill. Mm. So we run what's called a level one um, world rugby um, fair course, first aid in rugby. So yeah. looking specifically at the needs of pitch side and translating it and using good first aid techniques. So I think it's all of these things have developed at the higher end and we're now translating it down to the lower end. And at Bryn Summers uh, asks, do you ever get pressure from the management regarding medical decisions and how do you deal with it? Oh, we always get pressure, but of course, the, the desire of the coaches is to have everybody, if you've got a squad of 30, yeah. they want all 30 training every day so that they've got a full choice of 23 out of 30 at the weekend. Yeah. So there'll always be pressure. Does he really have to not do today's session or, or whatever? Fortunately, you do hear tales of, of people being overly pressured. I'd be very lucky in my um, dealings with coaches, particularly head coaches in Scotland, in that they respect your medical judgment. And yes, there may be some toing and froing and discussion, and particularly the best way to handle that is to make sure that you involve the player as well so I rarely have a discussion where we don't actually drag the player in so mm -hmm. that we can air and there may well be a leeway where we say well there is a risk but this is what I think the risk is how do you feel that using that player for this particular game knowing that risk are you comfortable with that and and so and and ultimately it has to be the player's decision they have to feel that they're um, safe to do so and they know that they will be backed up by the medics first and foremost your duty of care is to the player then to the team yeah it's funny the application of patient-centered care to the professional athlete basically yeah very it? much so um, the Department of Defence Rehab ask, what top tips would you give to healthcare professionals embarking on a career in elite sport? And specifically, what lessons have you learned the hard way? Well, I think that you, there's no substitute for experience. Okay. And it, it, it distresses me slightly in that we get a number of junior medical people coming through and thinking that once they've finished the training, they should be entitled to be doing perhaps my job. At, at international level. I have come through the ranks playing at club level, then treating at club level, then treating and mm. working at, 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 at the mid-level, so district level, and then ultimately at the uh, elite end. 
you can't substitute experience in, 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 in my view. And so I would say that one of the best things that you can do is to go and do some shadowing and then some volunteering at local clubs and hone your skills at the lower level before you expose yourself to what is quite a harsh environment at times and a very unforgiving environment at times, yeah. elite sport. Okay. And finally, we've got a comedy question. Uh, from a lieutenant colonel who didn't want to be named. And he asked, how in an undetectable fashion could you nobble the All Blacks? Salmonella, question mark. <laughs> who knows the story behind that? I was very lucky to be at the World Cup in South Africa, but unfortunately we weren't involved in, in the final. So you've got all of these stories that emanated about people being, being poisoned. Um, I would hope that certainly none of the medics that I'm involved in would ever get involved in those kind of shenanigans. <laughs> thanks so much for your time, Dr. Robson. We really, really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. To our listeners, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that fascinating episode. And please do engage with us and give us feedback on our Twitter at Milmed Podcast. And remember to log your CPD. Until next time.